Good evening. Everybody good tonight? Welcome to you. All of you joining us by audio or video podcast, welcome to you. Open your Bibles together to Luke chapter 17. This is message number four in a series entitled Clean Slate, the Miracle of Forgiveness. And it is a miracle. Forgiveness always is. I've heard Jimmy White say that he thinks that uh, as the generations go along that we're getting softer. He thinks that kids these days are soft. Anybody agree with that? You know what he's talking about? Explain it to me. What's Jimmy talking about? Or Jimmy, what are you talking about? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So you're talking to Miss Hopper who said her daughter at 50 couldn't do the work that she could do at 50 and her daughter at 30 uh, couldn't begin to even start to do what either one of the mother or grandmother could have done at 30. Yeah. So what's this mean? If the generations are actually getting softer, uh, I don't know. There's a last few years, a book came out for, for young people called Do Hard Things. It's actually a really excellent book called Do Hard Things. But, but the idea is what we now sort of have to encourage people to choose to do hard things because honestly, in our lives, we often can live a life of such comfort and ease that, that we manage to not have to ever work very hard. And some people don't really have to do a lot of hard things. Which brings us to the scripture tonight, uh, Luke chapter 17, teaching about forgiveness and faith. Jesus is going to talk about forgiveness, and it's going to overwhelm the disciples. Because when you're talking about forgiving, you're talking about doing something that is hard. And it's not getting any easier. Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Listen, this is all Jesus. This is good stuff. One day Jesus said to his disciples, There will always be temptations to sin, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. So watch yourselves. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. (coughs) Excuse me. Then if there is repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day and each time turns again and asks for forgiveness, you must forgive. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Show us how to increase our faith. The Lord answered, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, may you be uprooted and thrown into the sea and it would obey you. When a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of sheep, does his master say, come in and eat with me? No. He says, prepare my meal, put on your apron, serve me while I eat, then you can eat later. And does the master thank the servant for doing what he was told to do? Of course not. In the same way, when you obey me, you should say, we are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. There's quite a lot there. And remember, the topic is forgiveness. So let's, let's dig back in. Now, who's Jesus talking to in Luke chapter 17? Yeah, one day Jesus said to his disciples, so what is the relationship between Jesus and the ones that he's addressing here? What's the relationship? They're disciples, so what does that mean? They are his followers, they are the ones who have devoted their lives to, to serving him, they are his servants. 
So Jesus is talking to those who would follow, and and Jesus is, is trying to describe what's expected of them. So this is where he starts. There will always be temptations to sin, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting. Again, he's talking to his disciples. So this is sort of an an, an insider conversation. It'd be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. Now, who are the little ones? Who are the little ones, Claude? Claude says maybe unbelievers, talking about unbelievers, the the outsiders who who could be led into sin. Any other ideas? Yeah, Linda says perhaps young Christians, but maybe little ones are the the more vulnerable, the the young Christians who could be more easily led astray. Yeah, maybe unbelievers, maybe young Christians. What else? Now, often in Scripture, and, and often when you talk about a millstone tied around the neck, we're used to Jesus maybe talking about Children, yeah, in in other contexts, Jesus uses the same kind of language to talk about our responsibility to make sure we protect children. But the context here wouldn't suggest we're talking about children. Who are the little ones? Possibly all the above. Possibly all of the above. There will always be temptations to sin, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the the, the tempting. I think when Jesus uses this, this phrase, little ones here, I think he's trying to point to the vulnerability of all of us. There's a real vulnerability, certainly for young believers, certainly for non-believers, but for all believers, there is a vulnerability about us. We are all temptable. And, and any one of us is, is likely to, to, to wander away or be led away into sin. So Jesus wants to set up some parameters for us as believers. So this is what he says. It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. So watch yourselves. He goes on. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. Man, some of you love that. If rebuking were a spiritual gift, you got it. Yeah. Rebuking for some people is just great fun. I mean, if, if, if we need somebody to stand back and point out everybody else's faults, you know, you're there. You're our guy. Yeah. Some people love to rebuke, but honestly, most of us don't. Most of us honestly don't. We've sort of been taught that if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. Yeah. So often... We, we sort of fall into this sort of politeness within the body of Christ even where we don't rebuke each other. We wouldn't think of rebuking another person. If we think we see something that needs correcting, we might pray for him with all of our hearts. But some of us are very, very slow to do exactly what Jesus commands us to do here. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. Why would we do that? That's going to get ugly. Isn't it? I mean, who wants to go first? I mean, being the rebukee, not the rebuker. I mean, line up, we'll rebuke you. I mean, who wants that? Who wants to be rebuked? Who wants somebody to point out their sin when they see them falling into sin? Who wants that? 
Nobody? Maybe it depends on who's rebuking you. Maybe if it's, as long as it's somebody close, somebody closer to God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Jackie says depends on how they do it. Yeah, what do you say, Larry? Well, the proverb says, if you rebuke a wise man, a wise man, he'll love you. Rebuke a fool, he'll hate you. Yeah. So, being rebuked, being corrected, is that a good thing? I said, who wants that? And, and, and you all seem to imply nobody wants that. But Jesus seems to imply that everybody needs that. Everybody needs that. Very honestly, I want that. Now go easy on me. Not all of you at once. But, but I want that. I, I, I want that with, with all my heart. And having known most of you, a lot of you for years and years, I, I trust you to deal gently with my soul. But I would hope that if you see something in my life that does not belong, something that contradicts my faith in Christ, I would hope that you would come to me because there's a lot at stake. I have a growing son who needs a godly father in these years probably more than ever. I I have the most amazing wife in the world who needs a godly husband to stay beside her in in, in the years of the rest of her life. I serve a church that I think is the finest church in in all of the world, and you all are worthy of a, a, a good pastor. There is much at stake in, in my life, and I would trust that you love me enough not to let me walk off a cliff. You know what I'm saying? And the same could be said for any one of you. There is much at stake. You also have a very important marriage, perhaps, or you have very important people who look to you for guidance and love and stability. Woodburn Baptist Church is, I think, one of the finest churches in the world, and and you are a part of it, and we can't be the same without you. You understand? There is much at stake, and this is what Jesus is trying to say. We have a real obligation toward one another, an obligation to recognize each other's vulnerability and weakness. Everybody is a little one, so to speak. Everyone is someone that should be handled with very, very great care, but at the very same time, We have to love one another to try to stand in front of each other sometimes and wave our arms before we let somebody walk off the cliff. So so notice what's supposed to characterize our lives. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. And if there is repentance, forgive. Yeah, forgive. And it's just the one word, forgive. Do it. Forgive. You forgive quickly. You forgive immediately. Our aim is not to humiliate each other. Our aim is not to punish. It's not to put in the knife and twist it. I rebuke you. I point out whatever fault I might see because I love you and want the best for you. And when you repent, when you turn from that, immediately it's gone. It's done. Forgiveness is the period to the whole sentence. You understand? You just forgive. It's done. That's all we wanted was to see repentance, to make the correction. You just forgive freely and you forgive completely. This is to be what it's like to be in the body of Christ. Unfortunately, this doesn't happen very often. And a part of it is we don't really love each other very well. So it gets kind of interesting when somebody comes to correct me. 
Because if you're correcting me, but you've really never even demonstrated love toward me, that gets awkward. I mean, you can't wait to show up and tell me what I'm doing wrong, but you can't be bothered to say good morning on on most days. That gets weird. You understand? Jesus is assuming a, a very deep kind of fellowship and intimacy in his body. And I think that's fair to expect. We are parts of one body. So all of this happens in this context of great love and deep relationship, but but a place where we could correct, we could rebuke one another and forgive immediately and, and move on. Honestly, this is possible. This exists in the world, and I learned all about this at Woodburn Baptist Church. I've told people over and over and over. I, I used to work, I wasn't always pastor. I used to be the, the music minister. I used to work with pastors. We had a pastor who was scared to death of Winnie Mae Hopper. Winnie Mae's gone to be with the Lord now. He's scared to death of her. You know why? Winnie Mae would tell you what she was thinking. She just told you what she's thinking. And she didn't have a filter. It just came out. She'd tell you what she's thinking. And he was horrified of her. He was terrified of a woman who would tell him what she's thinking. I said, brother, you can get along with people like that. You can get along with somebody who tells you what she's thinking. Because honestly, here's the thing I learned about Winnie Mae Hopper. She'd tell you what she's thinking, but she'd tell me and nobody else. She didn't talk about me. She didn't wait. You know, she, if I needed to hear something, I heard it from Winnie Mae. And then once she told me, it was done. It was done. That, that woman would have done anything in the world for me. But now she didn't hold back if she thought there's something I needed to hear. Do you understand I am a better man for the love that's shown to me by people like Winnie Mae Hopper. You can get along with people who will tell you the truth. You can get along with people who tell you what they're thinking. You can get along with people who will tell you and then forgive you instantly. And Winnie Mae was one of those people. We need more of those people. We need people who know how to rebuke, know how to talk, communicate, and, and people who are excellent forgivers. Let's go on. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day, don't they work? Don't they have a full-time job? They got nothing to do but but somehow poke me seven times a day. Jesus says, even if this person wrongs you seven times a day and each time turns again and asks for forgiveness, you must forgive. Now, you know, Jesus gives this kind of lesson several times. In other places, he says 70 times 7. But whenever Jesus talks about forgiveness, it sort of overwhelms the disciples, you notice? And in this place, he, he just says seven times a day. If this person wrongs you seven times a day, and they apologize every time. Okay. If you've already done it five times, and told me you were sorry five times, and that's all before lunch... And then you do it time number six, and you apologize. What is your apology worth by now? Nothing. A person who will wrong you one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times a day, they apologize every time, but their apology means nothing. You understand? Apology means nothing. But Jesus says, you must forgive. He doesn't say you ought to. He doesn't say it'd be good if you would. It's a commandment. You must. You must. So Jesus actually goes to sort of the extreme. He gives us an example of a person who would be very, very difficult to forgive. Basically, the person who doesn't care. 
Their apology means nothing. And honestly, to them, your forgiveness means nothing. They don't care. And and honestly, I, I feel like that person who doesn't care is in most cases one of the most difficult people to forgive. They don't care. They don't care about you. They don't care that what they're doing hurts you. The apology is almost a mockery. But this person who continues to offend you, continues to apologize, they've done it seven times today, they'll do it seven times tomorrow. Jesus says you, what? Must forgive. In other words, Jesus is trying to make it very, very clear that you're not going to find any loopholes here. You're not going to come up with the exception, the person that has crossed the line so far that you are now no longer obligated to forgive. There is no loophole. There is no person who can do something so unspeakable that you are not still obligated to forgive. Have you seen the movie Unbroken? It's out right now, or have you read the book? Because the book is better than the movie, actually. Unbroken, the story of Louis Zamperini. He was a World War II vet. He lived this life that's absolutely amazing. But in part of his story, he ends up as a prisoner of war, the Japanese in World War II. He is in prison camps because he was also an Olympic athlete. They focus on him. They want to break him. They want to ruin him. They want to use him for propaganda. So they focus him. uh, They focus on breaking him. And it leads to an incredible experience of torture, incredible imprisonment, uh, absolutely devastating story. What's amazing about the story of Louis Zamperini, though, is the story of forgiveness that comes after that. There was one very brutal, very brutal officer of the Japanese who, who particularly focused on torturing Louis Zamperini. They called him the bird, the, the bird. It's amazing to think that Louis Zamperini actually went to Japan to try to find the bird for the one purpose of forgiving him. He wanted to go forgive him. So when we talk about the generations getting weaker along the way, I I, I tend to think possibly that's true. That's almost a different generation, a man who who would travel back around the world just to have an opportunity face to face to forgive a man who tortured you. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day and each time turns again and asks for forgiveness, you must forgive. And then the apostles say to Jesus, you're going to have to increase our faith. Increase our faith. It's almost too much to ask. And the disciples are saying to Jesus, if this is what it requires, you're going to have to increase our faith. There are some people very, very difficult to forgive. And in the process of this sermon series, some of you are beginning to tell me these stories. And it seems like in your life, you know, Brother Tim, let me tell you what's happened to me. How? How can I forgive? And you tell me a story about a very, very difficult person. Who do you think are the most difficult people to, please don't name names. (laughs) Who do you think are the most difficult kinds of people to forgive? Can you give me some examples? When does forgiveness just get really complicated, really difficult? Yeah, family. Family sometimes. In the family, it's harder to forgive. Why do you think that is? Family. You could forgive total strangers. Some of you would rather travel to Japan and forgive somebody like that than, than to have to maybe pick up the phone and call your brother. 
Why is family so difficult? Yeah, because they're family, we, we typically allow them, at least at points in our lives, to be closer. And the closer, the, the deeper I allow someone into my heart, the, the more deeply they can hurt me. Their, their betrayal, their harm, carries a, a sharper sting. So, so the hurts sometimes go deeper from family. Yeah. Why else? What about family? We, we expect their loyalty. Yeah, we count on it. So again, the, the, the sting of the betrayal is, is somehow much more devastating because we counted on their loyalty. Yeah. Something about that closeness, though, and something about the anger that we will carry for, for someone with whom we've been that close. Um, don't forget that anger is intimate. I know that doesn't make sense. I'll try to say it better. I can't. Anger is intimate. It it, it is. If you're angry at a person, you continue to hold them very close. You know what I'm saying? It's almost like you love them because you think about them all the time. You hold them very, very close, only it's not love, it's hatred. You've heard people say that there's a fine line between love and hate, and, and truly we begin to experience that in family when there's hurt, when there's harm, because that hatred is, is intimate, that anger is intimate, and it's a very, very close bond. It, it, it's a very close bond. And, and this is what I think is interesting sometimes when, when, it, when it comes down to forgiving family, especially when restoration is probably not likely or not possible. Because I think it turns out that that anger, that, that hatred is the only bond you have with that person, and in a very strange way, I think we hang on to it. I see this sometimes as a pastor when I'm dealing with people who've gone through divorce. Because sometimes years later, that divorced person is still so angry and will not forgive. Will not forgive. And just in observing those kind of situations, I get the idea that for that person, that they seem to maybe subconsciously recognize that once I forgive them, they are gone for good. You know what I mean? Once I let go of the anger, the anger is the only thing I have left. You've seen that divorced person who just will not forgive her husband ever? I I feel like sometimes if they really let him go, if they really forgave and let go of the anger, they have to recognize he's gone for good. I think sometimes in a really strange way, we, we cling to that anger. We refuse to forgive because honestly, in a perverted way, Anger's intimate. We continue to hold this person close, if not in love and hatred, but they're still close. That may not make any sense. If that doesn't make sense, erase it from the tape. Um, who else? What other the kind of person is very difficult to forgive? Yeah, what do you say, Emerald? The people who don't realize it? The people who don't realize they've hurt you? People don't realize it or people who don't care, I, 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 I don't know, kind of both. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard to get mad at somebody who didn't hurt, didn't mean to hurt you, so you feel awkward confronting them because then you just feel like a big baby, but yet the hurt is real. Yeah. And so sometimes if they don't realize they hurt you, it's hard to forgive. Man, I, I go back to the person who just doesn't care. Man, it's so difficult to just forgive the person who does not care. Years ago, we were building our house. And our framer, the guy that framed our house, was an amazing carpenter, but man, he was a rough dude. 
He was a rough dude. And one day the plumbers wanted to come and bring the tubs into the house, but, but the framer I knew wasn't really going to be ready for that. But the plumbers needed to do it. So, and, and I recognized this was going to be a lot for him, even though it wasn't much to ask. But anyway, I went out there, especially that morning, very, very politely just to say, listen, the plumbers want to bring the tubs into the house this afternoon. Would you mind? Would that be okay if they bring them? I wanted to respect him, but I really wanted still to ask, can they bring the tubs out? They need to do this. And he said, sure, absolutely. Tell them to bring it on. Okay. End of the day, I go back out to the job site. You know, it's my house. I've hired these people. You know, I'm paying. I get out there. Here's the framers working in the house. Here's Mr. Framer, you know, that said, yeah, bring them on out. You know, he's up there somewhere. I got three tubs in the field. Out in the field. Like, in the field. Nah. Man, I, I tell you, I wanted to come unglued. I, I wanted to explode. He said, I walked up to him and I said, um, buddy, I, I came early this morning and, and I asked you if, if we could put these in the house. Why are they in the field? He said, you didn't come out here and ask me that. Okay, what? You didn't come out here. You didn't come out here this morning. You didn't ask me that. I said, are you kidding me? I, I mean, I came to you. We talked this morning, and, and we talked about putting, he said, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. And then he went through every guy working up there, and every guy who was working on the house at the moment was there that morning when I came out. And he went by to the person and said, did, did he come out here this morning? Did we talk about that? And all the guys said, no, 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 no. Man, I was so angry. I was so angry. I just, man, I hate when somebody does me that way. You know? And then to make all those guys lie, because he's a big guy holding a hammer. I mean, you know. But you know what I had to face, man? He doesn't care. He did not care. He didn't care if I was mad. He didn't care if he lied. He didn't care if he just made all of them lie. He didn't care if my toes were in the field. He just didn't care. And the fact that I forgave him, he didn't care about that either. You understand? He didn't want my forgiveness. I didn't matter to him other than paying him for the job. I mean, he just did not care. His forgiveness, I mean, it's just he didn't care. And I think sometimes people who just don't care, it's not that they won't acknowledge that they, they may just stand there and lie to you, but the bottom line is he didn't care. And that just is infuriating to me, a person who just will not care to extend forgiveness to somebody to whom your forgiveness means nothing. I find that really difficult. Who else? Yeah, Larry. Wow. Yeah, yeah, especially inside a family. It's difficult to forgive somebody who didn't hurt you, but they hurt somebody you love. Yeah. That gets really, really complicated. You didn't do it to me. You didn't offend me, but you hurt my child or, or you hurt my spouse. Yeah, e- extremely, extremely complicated and difficult. Yeah. Keep going. Who else? Who's, who's hard? I, I mentioned the message this morning. I mean, I mean, for lack of a better way to say it, dead people. Dead people. Some of us harbor hurts, uh, harbor grudges, resentments for, for people long gone, neighbors, brothers, sisters, parents, and, and grandparents, and they're gone. How do you possibly forgive a person that's just gone? 
You can't talk to them. You'll never hear an apology. You you can't even have the opportunity to extend forgiveness face to face. How do you even do it? Any others? I I would say invisible people. Sometimes as pastor, I've seen situations where like one of you loses a job. Maybe you work for a company for 20, 25 years, and all of a sudden one day they just, they just put you out. And it's infuriating. You're so angry, but there's nobody to be mad at. It's kind of like when Tommy Newton was just mad at Burger King. You can't be mad at Burger King. I mean, you know, Burger King is not a person. It is not a real king, Tommy. I mean, there's just nobody. It's just all of these restaurants out there and people, and you can go in there, and you can cuss out the poor girl behind the counter, but she doesn't know who you are, and she didn't do it to you, you know? I mean, so how do you get mad at Burger King, or how do you get mad at the entire company, or how do you get mad? I mean, you got people just mad at the government. I mean, how are you mad at the whole government? I mean, who, what, and how would you begin to forgive when there's not a person to forgive? You can't even name the person who somehow has harmed you, and yet you know that you've suffered harm. How do you forgive an invisible person, a whole corporation? I mean, it gets really complicated. Jesus says, even if there's a person who wrongs you seven times a day, okay, let's all agree. If he's hurting me seven times a day, this is a psychopath. It's a sociopath. I mean, I'm getting one of those, you know, protective orders here. I mean, this guy is dangerous seven times a day. Even if he does it seven times a day. I mean, Jesus is talking about the most difficult person you could name here. Even if he hurts you seven times a day, you must forgive. And the disciples say, increase our faith. Okay. That's not going to come from inside of me. If this is what it requires, I have to increase my faith. Okay. So they assume that maybe the difficulty of this is because of a lack of faith. But notice where Jesus takes this. And I know I need to wrap it up. Go back in. First, Jesus says a word about faith. He says, if you had faith... Small as mustard seed. Whenever people talk about the amount of faith, Jesus always shifts, shifts the emphasis. It's never about how much faith you have. It is in what you place your faith. You understand? So it doesn't take a lot of faith. So Jesus just sort of, when they say, increase our faith, Jesus says, no, no, no. It, it, it's not about faith because it doesn't take that much faith. All right? So it's not a faith problem here. I could stop now because y'all won't like where this goes. You want me to go on? You'll forgive me later? Okay, let's go. Jesus tells a little parable. When a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of sheep, does this master say, come in and eat with me? No. He says, won't you prepare my meal, put on your apron and serve me while I eat, then you can eat later. And does the master thank the servant for doing what he was told to do? Of course not. Why not? Let's stop right there. This is a little word picture. It's a picture of like a boss and an employee. Now, how many of you work for a boss? How many of you work really hard for the boss? How many of you have a routine sort of experience where the boss meets you out at your car just to thank you for the way you serve the company? He'll send you frequent, you know, little gifts, thank you notes. Sometimes you'll come in and find a little mint on your desk. Okay, no, this never happens. Why not? Because you're his employee, understand? You're not doing him favors. 
You're doing what's expected of you. You're his employee. And Jesus uses that kind of example. Let's say somebody has a servant, and the servant comes in from plowing and taking care of the sheep, and then he comes in, and it's supper time. Does the master say, oh, boy, you've been working so hard. Why don't you come on in here and take off your shoes? Sit in here beside me. Why don't you come on down and sit down, and, and, and we'll order pizza tonight. No. Servant's been working all day, but the master's going to say, hey, put your apron on and go in there and fix me supper. Then come on back in here and clean up the dishes. And when it's over, is the master going to go, thank you very much, thank you? No, no. Because the servant was only doing what he was told to do. That's what servants do. In the same way, verse 10, when you obey me, you should say, we are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. Okay, y'all remember we were talking about forgiveness? And you remember that what spawned that parable was where the disciples said, oh, increase our faith. We don't know if we can forgive like that. That's asking an awful lot. And then Jesus tells a story about what? Not about having more faith, but about what? The, the duty of a servant. I, I told you you weren't going to like that. So when you think about the hardest person in your life to forgive, and you do that, you haven't done anything extra. You haven't done anything extraordinary. This incredible heavy lift of forgiveness that you feel like you have to muscle right now, you're really only doing your duty. You're not doing the maximum, you're doing the minimum. Jesus says, even if somebody wrongs you seven times a day, you must forgive. And when it's over, all you can say is, I'm still an unworthy servant, only doing my duty. Forgiveness is not an option. It is a command. And even when you feel like you are doing the impossible task of forgiving, still, you're only doing what the master commands. You must forgive. Let's pray together. Lord, we are unworthy servants. And sometimes, Lord, it is not faith that we lack. It is a willingness to obey. Lord, I pray that you will increase our willingness to obey you. May we recognize, Lord, our duty as those who would be your disciples to protect each other, to rebuke and correct and protect each other. And may we, Lord, be excellent forgivers in this place. May we be the kind of people, Lord, who can say it, forgive it, never bring it up again, Lord. Will you make us that kind of church, that, that kind of people, Lord? And will you make it so that when we have forgiven, Lord, we don't begin to think that we've done something extraordinary? 
may we simply serve you, Lord, and follow all of your commands. And, and, and may we get very, very used to the fact that you are the master and we are here to serve you, Lord. And may we no longer expect that others would serve us or that you, O oh God, would serve us. We're unworthy servants and we are the recipients of such grace and forgiveness every day, Lord. The forgiving that we need to do before the sun sets tonight, before this week is over, Lord, help us to do it because it is our duty, but because it is what you've commanded us to do, because it is what we must do. All we ask, Lord, is the strength to do what our duty requires of us. Give us strength, increase our faith, make us, Lord, to be dutiful servants. We pray these things in the name of the Lord.